Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, Jerry Gilmore from Cambridge University updates us on the latest discoveries from the Gaia space probe. And so almost certainly what this is, is the creation event of our own Milky Way. But first, robots are overtaking the kitchen. Until recently, catering robots have been gimmicky. Robot arms flipping burgers, serving sushi, making mojitos. But a new hamburger restaurant in San Francisco called Creator is using robots to create 300 burgers in an hour without human help at all and at quality that surpasses anything attempted before. To look at this appetizing phenomenon, on the phone with me is David Hambling, who wrote about the rise of the kitchen robot for this week's Economist. Hello, David. Hi, Ken. So, David, what is so different about Creator? Creator is an incredibly finely engineered robotic kitchen which fits inside this small two-meter square unit. So it, it automates the entire process of burger production from actually grinding the meat itself to mixing the patty, cooking the patty, toasting the bun, slicing the bun, adding the toppings, putting the whole thing together and putting it into a bag. It's a robotic production line inside a small metal box. Why do I want this? Because it sounds incredibly appealing and and they've put lots of glass windows in it so you can actually see your burger being made. And as you say, it's churning out the burgers at this amazing rate, over 300 burgers an hour. But the clever thing is that each one is completely customised. You have a tablet ordering system, so you can say how you want your burger done, what toppings you want, what cheese you want. Everything is completely customizable, and it gets it 100% perfect every time. And the creators say that they're producing a gourmet burger at fast food prices. Okay. So speed, accuracy, cost. Is this just a gimmick, or is this something that's really going to be a mainstream way with which we prepare food? The developers certainly think that it's got potential to be a commercial operation and this could be the future certainly of fast food, maybe of uh, lots of other sorts of food as well. Particularly one of the key things is you don't need a kitchen. All you need is that small space and you've got it so you can devote the rest of the area to actually being a restaurant. And from a financial point of view, from an economic standpoint, it looks like this might very well have legs. That's cute. Do you think that people are going to prefer the robot-made hamburger, or will it always be more of like a gimmicky thing, versus a human being-made hamburger with all of its inefficiencies, but gee, it was made by man. I think as of day one, it's a gimmick, and I think that's the reason why a lot of people will be going to it to start off with, is just to go there and, and have the sheer joy of watching a robot make your burger. After that, it then comes down to the quality of the product they can turn out, 
and how the numbers look. But it's interesting with almost everything else you have, everything around you, uh, the chair you're sitting on, your desk, all your furniture, cutlery, everything, it's all made by robots these days. And the, this idea that things should be made by humans, that's a, a very small niche market. Okay, so let me get this right. So the five people in the kitchen now are replaced with one human maitre d' and four people who are freed up their time to fill out unemployment benefit forms. Uh, we will have to see how it works out. But one of the, the companies that's big in this is uh, an outfit called Zoom Pizza in California. And they are adamant that their robots are co-workers and that they're not making anyone redundant. They're just freeing them up to do more advanced tasks. Whether it actually works out like that, we'll see. But they are quite adamant that they're not simply about automating away job. So is this interesting because it's going to mean robots in food preparation and is going to take off? Or is what's happening here in food prep just simply a training ground for all the robotic uses in other parts of industries? It's an interesting case because there were no robots that could do this kind of thing before. Um, because typically with food, you're dealing with very squishy, unreliable things. Uh, unlike in the industry, robots can drill holes and put rivets in bits of metal and plastic that stay in the same place and are nice and consistent. When you're dealing with foodstuffs, there's a lot more uncertainty, so it requires high levels of machine intelligence and better sensing to be able to handle materials effectively. So I, I think the, the fact that we're suddenly getting a rush of robot restaurants is perhaps a marker that robots are now being able to take over a wider range of tasks. And I can't believe that's going to be restricted to catering. I think you're going to see that crops up in a lot of other areas as well. Okay, so I will accept for very simple tasks like flipping a burger, it's a robotic job and maybe a robot should do it. But what about for a little bit more elaborate dishes in which a chef is normally tasting things along the way and then making small little iterations here and there, a pinch of salt, a splash of curry? What about that? That's exactly the point that Zoom Pizza make, and that's why they say uh, you'll never be able to completely automate it because you'll always need a human, if only for the quality control at the end, because as I say, a machine can't taste a pizza. That's something you need a human for. Well, at least there's something for humans after all. David, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next up, there are a plethora of individual identifiers used to recognize people. Faces, voices, fingerprints, retinal scans. However, scientists have for years used video cameras and computers to analyze how people walk and are now using pressure-sensitive mats to recognize individual patterns of walking. The technology opens the gate to new possibilities. Ooh. To talk more about this, I'm joined in the studio by Paul Markley, the Economist Innovation Editor. Hello, Paul. Hello, Ken. Paul, let's start. Using technology to recognize an individual's gait isn't particularly new, and nor are pressure mats. So what's different? Well, the difference is that the way this has been done for a number of years is using video cameras. So you train a video camera on a person or a group of people walking along, and you look at the way their feet move, and then you analyze that, and you actually find they're very individual to that person. And so, therefore, if you film a bunch of people walking along 
and you've already got their gait pattern in the database, you can recognize people from the way they walk. The only problem is cameras are fairly expensive. They're very visible, so they're intrusive. You can see where they are. They're fiddly to set up. They need good light. And if you're wearing a long coat, you can't see the feet anyway. So they have problems. A pressure mat, however, they've long been used so that if somebody walks into an area, their weight triggers a, a signal. But if you have a lot more sensors in the mat, you can measure the pressure of that individual foot or individual feet, put all those pressure points together very carefully and use something that is increasingly very good at pattern recognition, i.e. artificial intelligence, and then you have a much easier system than you do with cameras. Okay. Why do I care about this? Why do I want this unless I'm a state that wants to surveil my citizens? A group of researchers based at Manchester University have done this with a very simple mat system, which they've put together for about a hundred pounds, and it uses optical fibers that deflect and can give a very precise pattern of somebody's gait. One they're particularly interested in is use in care homes or in the individual residences of elderly people, for instance. And if you monitor the way they walk over a period of time, your gait changes as you age. It also changes as you suffer certain illnesses such as cognitive impairment. So you could potentially detect that something is going to happen to an elderly person, such as the possibility of them suffering falls, long before any other symptoms are obvious. So it would be a fairly cheap way of monitoring people. And then there are other possibilities, usually on some permission-based level, such as high-security laboratories or military facilities, where employees already may well have fingerprints or retinal scans taken, or even just mugshots. And analyzing the way they walk is another level of being able to identify it is who it is who says they're knocking at the door. Do you think that this will ever become a mainstream way of identification or will this always be a niche application? For example, going through an airport right now, I use my photo ID and the passport to identify who I am, face recognition. When will I just walk through the gates because I'm walking? I'm not sure that will happen because in order for me to identify it's you coming along on your pins, walking the way you do, I've got to have how your legs work in my database. So unless you've given it to me or you've been somehow living in a country where they decided to monitor these things as part of your national identity, it's not going to really know. However, in an airport, you might, for instance, want to say aircrew moving through. Or I might say to you, if you're a frequent flyer, you can go along and have your Irish scanned and your mugshot taken, two forms of identity. A third one is just walk on this mat for half a dozen steps and we've got your gait as well. You've got then three levels of identity. And the walking one's very easy because it's just a corridor and you walk along a mat and you wouldn't even notice that one's taking place. Whereas the others, you would presumably have to stop to have your face checked and your fingerprints taken or your retinal scanned. That sounds fantastic. I'd be laden down with all of my luggage for all of my children. Mm, that's true. That may affect the way you walk, of course, in which case you will be pulled out of the line and sent through the manual security system. Always am, Paul. I always am. Thank you. Always great to talk to you. So what are your thoughts on using gate as an identifier or on robots overtaking the kitchen? Tell us in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. 
Now, regular Babbage listeners know that every week or thereabouts, we like to give away a book, sadly only just one book, to our listeners, and it's for free. They just have to email us, but they have to answer a question of our design first. The book this week is The Universe as It Really Is, Earth, Space, Matter, and Time by Thomas R. Scott, and the question is, here on Earth, we call the planet Earth. What are some of the possible names that other beings might come to on other planets looking at this one if they didn't know that the name of it was Earth? Tell us what those other possible names for this planet would be by people from other planets, and at our discretion, we will choose one and send you a copy. You can email your responses to radio at economist.com. Finally, in April, we discussed the launch of the large data release from the Gaia space probe as it measured over 1.3 billion stars. The Economist science correspondent Kiara Eisner went to speak to Jerry Gilmore, a professor of experimental philosophy at the University of Cambridge and the leader of the UK's involvement in the Gaia space mission, about the latest updates. She started by asking him to briefly sum up what the mission is. Gaia, I should just say, is a spacecraft. It's been in operation for nearly four years now. And it's the uh, high-precision machine which is measuring the Milky Way and measuring the distances to stars for the first time ever. And in late April, we released our first major data release, which was the first time in the history of mankind that we have actually known where stars are in significant numbers. And we have known what the three-dimensional structure of our Milky Way really looks like. And this just revolutionised the subject. In addition to knowing where stuff is and therefore what the Milky Way looks like in 3D, we also measure the motions of every star. So we see everything moving, everything in the sky moves. And this means that we can go beyond a snapshot of what the Milky Way looks like to being able to say why it looks like that and start to provide some understanding rather than just a map. Since then, there have been, on average, half a dozen major scientific papers every day come out of that. The Gaia data set turns out to be the most accessed scientific data set on Earth, and the number of people who have accessed it is approximately 50 times larger than the total number of astronomers on Earth. So it's clearly of much, much broader interest than just the the nerdy specialists. So when you say that half a dozen of these papers are published a day, they're published not just by your team, but by other teams? Yeah, it's a global thing. I mean, the people publishing it, the first science papers, the first three, came out within one hour of release of the Gaia data, and they all came from the US, which wasn't involved in at all. And and probably half of the papers since then have been from countries that are not involved in the Gaia project. It's certainly true that there are teams in Europe, including in Cambridge, my home, where people have been building up for a long time, for years, getting ready for this. And we've run a program of of mock data, so people have been given simulated data. That We've run a program of training people how to access the data and what to use for it, which has run for about five years now. So people were out of the starting blocks and ready to go, and sure enough, they went. Well, one of the most recent discoveries is probably the most significant so far in terms of longevity, something people will still be talking about in decades to come. And it was a very major discovery made independently by groups in three or possibly four different countries. And this was a map of the way that old stars are moving in the inner parts of the Milky Way. And from the way these stars are moving, people (coughs) have realised that 
most of the stars, not the very oldest stars and not the younger of the oldest stars, but most of the oldest stars are moving in a very special way in the galaxy. And they're, they're moving almost exactly in and out like hedgehog spines from the center of the Milky Way. They don't go right into the center and they don't go all that far out. But wherever you look all around the whole Milky Way, it's like a pincushion with all these stars. Now, there's only one obvious way to get stars to do that. And that's to take two roughly equal size big galaxies and smash them together exactly head on. And so almost certainly what this is, is the creation event of our own Milky Way. So there would have been some stuff lying around, some proto-Milky Way, and some other big thing fell in on it, probably comparable in size, and the two halves fell together, smashed each other to pieces. One of them spread out in this pincushion fashion and is still there, and the other one cooled down and collapsed and created the what the beginnings of the Milky Way that we now see on the sky. So that's what Gaia was for. Gaia was invented to say, what is the Milky Way like? But more importantly, where did it come from? And it looks like already, just a few weeks after the event, we've made major progress in one of the biggest problems of all. So I think that's pretty spectacular, actually. And so from this database, we can learn more about what has happened in the past 10 billion years. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll be able to use it to predict the next 10 billion? Oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, one of the ambitions of Gaia is to provide a high-resolution map of how the dark matter is distributed in the Milky Way. It's probably possible. We don't know. It might take 20 years to get that far. But once we know how the dark matter is distributed and how much of it there is, then we can work out quite accurately when and how we are going to merge with the Andromeda galaxy, maybe five, six, seven billion years in the future, not that far away, not long after our own sun dies. The Milky Way and Andromeda will merge together and all of the other stuff in, in what we call the local group and our patch of the universe will merge together into a new giant single galaxy. All the history will be forgotten and washed out at that stage. It'll be very dull being an astronomer after that because you'll have no idea what happened long ago. But we'll create this big star pile. And when we know how the dark matter is distributed, we'll be able to work out how that's going to happen and when that's going to happen in much greater detail. And so we will quite literally be able to predict the death of the Milky Way as well as exploring its birth. That's all for this show. I'm Kenneth Kukier. And in London, this is The Bunch of Robots Producing The Economist. 